0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Here's the Plan, our brand new youth-led podcast where we're working out a 10-step plan to pull ourselves out of the mess of the climate and biodiversity crises. I'm James Miller.
1: And I'm Bella Lack. And today on the show, we're talking to Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, the ex-Environment and Energy Minister for Costa Rica, to dive into how governance can lead a country from one struggling socially and environmentally to one that has been awarded the Champions of the Earth Award, the UN's highest environmental honour. As we learnt with Victoria Simon a few weeks ago, who said cities can act as innovation hubs to test out sustainable projects, Costa Rica can act as a country-wide version of this, an experimental and innovative test of different ideas, pushing the boundaries and laying the groundwork for other countries to follow.
0: In this conversation, we find out how to change institutions to work for, rather than against the environment, how abolishing their army transformed Costa Rica's government, And most importantly how they've managed to find that intersection between human development and environmental governance. It's a fascinating discussion and we really hope you enjoy it as much as we did.
1: Welcome, we're really excited to have you here. For me this is a particularly special recording because in 2019 I spoke to Carlos Alvarado just a short while after Costa Rica was nominated for the Champions of the Earth Award. So all these years that have passed, I've seen Costa Rica as this shining beacon of hope. And I go around to people and they say, do you feel despair when you see the challenges we have to face? And I say, yes, but there are solutions all over the world. There are individuals and there are countries like Costa Rica and I use it as this example of hope. So I'm really excited to catch up to see what's happened in those few years and to hear another perspective. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, my pleasure. I used to be the Minister of Environment for Carlos Alvarado.
1: He was amazing. I was 16 and he took the time to chat to these two teenagers who were just really curious and passionate about the environment. And I think that was a big sign of the type of guy he is, just taking the time.
2: It was very interesting. Let me share an anecdote with you, Bella. When he offered me the position to be his Minister of Environment, we didn't know each other, never met. We are from different political parties. He's 20 years younger than me. And he asked me, what is your plan if I bring you on board with me as a minister, what is your plan? And I basically told him, I will make you the greenest president of planet Earth. And I was not joking. And he laughed at me, but he liked the idea. (laughs) He Eventually, he made the front page of Time Magazine because of our decarbonization plan. We received multiples awards from UN, the Earthshot Initiative. I'm very grateful with him and what he did, of course.
1: Throughout the podcast, we're going to be able to answer the question of did you make him the greenest president on earth or not? So within this hour, let's get to the bottom of that.
0: But before we do, I'd quite like to know a bit about what started your passion for the natural world. Is it the case that you grew up in quite a wild part of Costa Rica?
2: I grew up when Costa Rica was a rural society. Today, 62% of Costa Rica live in the big cities. My grandfather was a hunter as a export. So he took me into the forest and go hunting. I love it. I love not killing the animal. I, I love as a kid to be in the wild and, and be hunting and the adventure. But immediately that changed from into uh, loving nature and understanding much uh, nature. Particularly when I was in between 12, 13, 15, 16 years old, I began traveling around the country and I saw firsthand the destruction of the forest. The destruction of the forest in Costa Rica was basically promoted because of this concept that land should generate jobs, should generate income. Costa Rica was a rural-based economy, so we planted coffee, avocado, ranching, livestock development, and all kinds of agricultural products. We never understood the importance of the forest, and there were not a single protected area. Uh, I was shocked by deforestation, and that uh, really began changing my perception of what I should be doing into the future. It was a combination of being exposed to the best and, and most beautiful nature at the same time that I saw the destruction. And the destruction was massive.
0: That background of just having a fascination for nature and um, an appreciation of the beauty of the natural world, I think that's something that Bella and I can really relate to. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners as well. But we're really interested, I know, to Hear about how you became Environment Minister and what that journey looked like for you of going from that young child with a love of nature through to someone who was actually in a position where they could stop the destruction that they were so shocked by.
2: It was very interesting because I always felt that I was the black sheep of my generation because the aspiration was to have an academic degree and to become a a successful professional, particularly making money. And I was the only one who has no interest in making money. I had a very specific interest in protecting nature and I was not a biologist or an ecologist. I went to law school and I heard that there's a new science called environmental law and environmental policy. The the U.S. was developing a lot of policies on nature conservation. This was late 1970s, so that that had an influence in, in me. I had a vein for politics But people never took me very seriously because back then, nature conservation was not a big issue. And I worked a lot in the NGOs, but then I decided to get much more involved in politics because I felt that the system can only be changed from the inside. In the late 1980s, we felt the need to create a political party that can have an influence. Uh, And I decided that instead of creating a political party, let's work with the two big political parties. Costa Rica, we got two big parties the same way you got in the UK. And I worked my way inside. We began, my my work was convincing the party that I was a member that there should be a plan to protect nature. I received a lot of support by many people because in Costa Rica, I would say that uh, the government does relatively good in terms of services. Energy, health, education. When you have a healthy, informed, educated society, they put a lot of emphasis on principles and values. And we began putting nature within the national values, particularly by the creation of protected areas, calling the attention of deforestation. We were the guys who were saying, no, 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 no. We need to go to a new, a new paradigm of development. And it took us 20 years to get to something where I can say there was a social contract, an understanding of everybody. I became first director of protected areas 1995. I was hired in the Ministry of Environment and eventually I became the minister three times in '98 and 2002 and then in 2018, when I was not working in government, I was working with the NGOs, which gave me you know the global perspective
0: absolutely we were both so impressed by what you managed to achieve in your time as environment minister that's one of the reasons we really wanted to speak to you uh but for those people who are listening who maybe don't know as much about your background could you explain what it is that you did in your three terms that you're most proud of we did a lot of things
2: i lead some very specific breakthrough policies but i was a part of a generation or a larger team across political parties and this is very interesting. Costa Rica has been successful because nature conservation has been accepted through different political parties. In general terms, whatever the government changes and a new party comes into power, they continue to do what the previous government was doing. And initially, our plan was to protect these last patches of forest with national parks. And I never thought, even in my wildest dreams, that we will not only achieve that small goal to protect the last remaining standing forest, but restoring the landscapes as we have done. Costa Rica in the last uh, 30 years has doubled the size of the forest, more than double, and 100% uh, renewable energy in the electric sector. Costa Rica today, even though it is a a middle-income nation with a lot of political consistency, has been able to resolve the two biggest problems in terms of carbon emissions, uh, the way we produce our electricity and land use change. Today, uh, around 25% of the electricity generated in planet Earth is with renewable sources. Costa Rica is already 100%. So we are in a unique circumstance to electrify uh, the transportation sector. That's our biggest challenge uh, today. We are not just aiming for Electrifying the transportation sector. We're moving towards a new paradigm of transportation where people use more public mass transportation systems that, you know, private cars. This is very complicated because as always, there's all kinds of economic interests, groups fighting back. The very interesting thing, James and Bella, is that what we did in Costa Rica is what everybody else in planet Earth need to do. When we were in that process and we understood that restoring forests, protecting the biodiversity, going clean in the energy sector, was generating jobs and economic growth. So we doubled the size of our forests. We went 100% renewable energy at the same time that the economy tripled and the population doubled. Proving that protecting nature and curbing down emission is not a cost to the economy. On the contrary, we found that there are multiple other innovative ways to have a healthy economy.
1: You're talking about how environmentalism and conservation is embedded in national values. In the UK, it's kind of political. Some parties are very pro-green policies and some are very anti-them. I really want to know, and I think it's really important because you've touched on it so many times, how Costa Rica overcame these silos and got different parties to collaborate, sit in the same room. How did you overcome the political barriers?
2: Costa Ricans are very well informed, very well educated in terms of human development. Costa Rican lives uh, longer, happier. Our environmental footprint is way smaller than any American. And I would say that now that I'm living in in America, they are way more conscious on environmental issues than any American. It has been what has made the difference. It's not necessary, the, the concrete political negotiation. It has been the long-term systematic investment in human development and education and healthcare. Costa Rica took a very brave decision 75 years ago to abolish the army. So most of the monies that uh, were channeled to the militaries uh, were redirected uh, to education and healthcare. And even though that was not that much of a money, there was a discovery of a new national reality with civil rights, uh, minorities, labor laws, and many other things. So the investment in the human capital is one of the most important things. I follow UK politics, and I know everything that is happening is not that different in Costa Rica. we got the same people saying exactly the same thing. But the bulk of the society is very pro-green. And this puts an additional pressure to politicians. And when I say political negotiation, I'm thinking on the laws that we have passed in our parliament. This is what really generate the changes. You can have good governments, good ministries, they can do a lot, but eventually what really give us the sustainability of the actions is going through Congress, and that hasn't been easy, and Even during the 1990s, we passed a lot of laws. In the last 15 years, it has been very little laws that has been approved because the private sector, particularly the very conservative forces from the economic sector, are opposing many things. For example, Costa Rica needs a, a new water law, and it has been systematically obstructed by the agricultural sector, who doesn't want to pay for the real cost of the water, doesn't want to invest in restoring the watershed, and they only want to deregulate their sectors. sector. That is not acceptable, but nevertheless, they got a lot of power and and influence. So we have failed big time, many times in the recent 15 years in passing new ambitious legislation.
0: Well, that's that's really interesting to hear about the factors that you think have driven the long-term sustained environmental agenda in Costa Rica. Turning back to that specific achievement that you had of more than doubling forest cover, the strategies that you use for that, do you think those are widely applicable in other countries, especially tropical countries facing deforestation? Yes. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Let
2: me explain a little bit about that. What were the things that really helped Costa Rica go from 21% forest cover to be, I don't know, 55, 56% forest cover today? And by the way, we are aiming to be 60% forest cover by 2030. Well, the rest of the planet has recently committed to protect 30%, I can explain it very simple. We went from negative incentives on land use into positive one. 25 years ago, if you own a forest, not coffee, not cow, not pineapple, just forest, it was considered unproductive land. And back then, all land should be under production, Because this is what will generate jobs, wealth, development, and progress. That was the simple idea. So if you own a forest, it it was going against the concept of progress and development. And you had to pay a tax. People don't want to pay taxes. So you chop down and burn the forest and do something else. Because you don't want to pay a tax. That is a typical negative incentive. We had more than 60 three negative incentives aim for production, for development, for growth on the agricultural sector. This is what you see in Africa, in the Amazon, in Indonesia, in Papua, in Philippines. I mean, the same things I saw 25 years ago, I see today. So these are the negative incentives. Which are the positive incentives? If you own forests, you don't pay land taxes. If you own forests and somebody invades your property, the government comes and move them away. Protect your land. If you own forests, in Costa Rica, you are being paid for the carbon, water and biodiversity services. This is the payment for environmental services. This is one of my creations that was uh, very important. So we went from negative incentives into positive incentives. It's all about incentives. That's one thing. The second thing is that we passed laws prohibiting land use change we know that deforestation is bad for the people bad for the planet and bad for the economy even though deforestation continues to be legal in costa rica in 1996 we passed a very important policy we said that land use change going from a forest into cattle pineapple or coffee is not accepted so uh, when we put that prohibition we immediately put a positive incentive. So if you own a forest and you cannot chop it down and have cows and coffee, you go, you can be paid by the service of carbon sequestration, biodiversity protection, water production. And that has become
0: very attractive. I wonder, is it the case that you've managed to achieve all of these really widespread changes just with you working alone as environment and energy minister? Or has it required, you know, coordination with other departments in the government? Has there been any opposition from them? Or have they all been working with you in this goal?
2: So in many countries, we've got an agency that works with renewable natural resources. These are the agencies that run the Forest Service, the Wildlife Service, protected areas, water, etc. And on the other side, you got other agencies that manage non-renewable natural resources, oil and gas minerals, et cetera. And having two agencies managing different natural resources, they operate with different visions. So the ministers of energy, they had been trained to do oil and gas. We will never get rid of the oil and gas if the ministers of energy of all of our countries has been trained to do oil and gas. Costa Rica was able to merge and change and adjust the institutions So the institutions work more at the landscape level. we got a very strong Ministry of Environment that manages all natural resources as opposed to have five different agencies. I compare myself, Costa Rica, with Indonesia. Indonesia has a Ministry of Environment, a Ministry of Forest, a Ministry of Energy Mining, and a Ministry of Agriculture. Four agencies work in the same place with different ideas, with confronting agendas. At the end of the day, what you will be generating is destruction of nature. We will never achieve protecting 30% of uh, nature across the globe if we believe that the institutional framework that we have now will solve it.
0: Well, that's really interesting that you should say that because institutional change was actually an idea that was brought up by one of our previous guests, Victoria Simon, who again said a very similar thing to you, And that it's really important that everyone is operating with the same vision across the government if we're to have truly sustainable policies set in place. And that gets me thinking it's important to have a unified vision at a national level, but it's also really important that we have a plan, I think, at a global level. And I'm wondering what it is that you feel that developed countries and wealthier nations maybe that have less tropical forests themselves, like the UK, for example, where we are, what it is that we can be doing to help stop deforestation, particularly of those forests with the highest value to biodiversity in the tropical regions? Are we doing enough? Is there more that we should be doing? What do you think?
2: You will be surprised, James and Bella, that many countries are doing relatively good in forest conservation. There are probably 35 countries in the planet that has more than 50% forest cover. We call them high forest, low deforestation nations. And these are nations that need support. They need support by those who profit for free out of the carbon services these countries provide them. For example, Gabon in in Africa. Gabon has 90% forest cover. They offset and sequestrate a lot of carbon and nobody pays them. Without the forests of Gabon, there won't be a drain in the Sahel. The Sahel is this strip of very dry land in Africa. If there is no rains over there, the people will migrate. And where do you think that those climate refugees will go? They will go to the north. And then we will have another huge conflict. The best way to avoid a human conflict with climate refugees, is investing in protecting the forest in the Congo Basin. Achieve progress in the Paris Agreement, particularly in article number six, that says that there will be an international market for carbon offsets. They are not paying the real value of the service. Let me give you an example. Today, if you are in a developing country with forests, tropical forests, and you want to protect that forest, you may receive a payment for the carbon credits through this RED Plus, reducing emission from forest uh, degradation and deforestation, and the value is five seven dollars per ton. In Costa Rica, because I did the exercise, it costs seventeen dollars to offset a ton of carbon. And I, if I want to sell that ton of carbon in the international voluntary market, the value is five seven dollars. It's not working. Instead of the UK. Sending a lot of ODA money to Gabon and to Costa Rica, they should be charging for those who pollute the environment in the UK for the service that Costa Rica and Gabon can give them for upsetting those emissions. So it's not a matter of putting more ODA assistance for development, it's a matter of fixing the market failure. So you need to pay developing countries at least 25 to 30. Dollars per ton of carbon. So you can create an incentive that is more attractive than chopping down the forest and having palm oil or soybean or cattle or coffee. So this is one huge frustration that we Costa Ricans do have, that uh, people don't connect the dots with regards to what we need to do in terms of creating the right market uh, conditions.
1: Which countries would you say we can look to like Costa Rica as a beacon of hope for sustainability, as inspiration for countries who are lacking?
2: Costa Rica is different to the countries that I'm going to mention because Costa Rica lost the forest and restored the forest. As opposed to many of the countries, they still have a high primary forest cover, but they can lose it very soon. So I I will say that, that countries like Bhutan, Gabon, DRC, and Rwanda, El Salvador, Costa Rica, Guyana, Suriname. There are 25 countries, and you can Google them high forest, low deforestation nations. That we look at that with hope and optimism. But let me give you a problem of Suriname. Suriname is pristine Amazon rainforest, 90% forest cover, less than 1 million inhabitants, but they had a huge financial problem. The only option is to log the forest, oil and gas. And minerals, this is the only option they have to overcome the financial crisis. The carbon forest market, the non-timber products, the sustainable development initiatives cannot compete at this moment with those extractive activities. And that is not just because the extractive activities is more profitable. It is because those extractive activities are not being taxed with the environmental costs. And this is something that we need to solve in, in the future. So oil and gas will continue to be very attractive to many countries because they are not being taxed. As a matter of fact, you know, the oil and gas industry in the last couple of years has done the highest profit ever in the world. It is unreal, ironic that the industry that is killing the planet is the same industry that is having the highest profit uh, out of any other uh, economic activity.
0: It is ridiculous. It is completely ridiculous. Ridiculous.
2: We have a huge challenge in terms of the generation gap and the transition within my generation and your generation. I'm almost 63. The rest of my generation doesn't see this as ridiculous. That's the point. You, James, and you, Bella, you see this as, as ridiculous. But those who are in power in the political sector in the economic sector doesn't see this as such. I strongly believe that George generation will do the change.
0: I mean, I'd, I'd love to speak to you more about that, but I'm, I'm just conscious of the time. Can we ask you our, our final question? It's a quick one, but it's one that we like to ask of all our guests, which is that if there was one thing that you could ask governments, businesses, ordinary citizens at home to do for the planet, what would it be?
2: I would say that to governments, immediately ban armies, the private sector, really rally around the effort to phase out as soon as possible all fossil fuels and to citizens that um, you know they should be composting most of uh, their garbage in- so instead of sending it to-, to the waste dump site if we can compost our garbage, 70% of the waste doesn't go to the landfill, we can recycle and guess what? we can be zero waste uh, very soon.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. It's framed my thinking a lot.
1: Thank you so much for everything.
0: So, Bella, seeing as this is probably your favourite episode that we've recorded, I'm going to let you start. I'm going to let you kick off. What did you take away from that?
1: I think something which I took away from that, which I've been so opposed to for quite a while, is the idea of putting an economic value on nature, putting a price tag on ecosystem services But what Carlos spoke about a lot was how Costa Rica's success was driven by economics. And it was the PES scheme and paying farmers to conserve biodiversity, which was the biggest factor resulting in their current sustainability. What have you thought about that until now? Because I've been quite opposed to those economic incentives.
0: Oh, Bella, I think this is a huge, huge topic and still a raging ongoing debate. Yeah, I think uh, definitely... Economics and economic incentives have a huge part to play in the environmental destruction that we see today all around the world, especially in tropical rainforests, and that addressing those economic incentives is really, really important. And this was, I think, Carlos's main message to us. It's all about the incentives and changing them from negative to positive. And this doesn't just apply in tropical rainforests. This applies in all sorts of areas when we think about environmental issues, there are perverse subsidies for fossil fuels, um, favouring fossil fuels over other forms of energy. It's really prominent in fisheries around the world. There are tens of billions of pounds of subsidies in fisheries every year, and the majority of those subsidies act to increase fishery capacity. So in already declining fish stocks, these government payouts incentivizing fisheries to take more and more fish out of the ocean, when in fact what we should be doing is encouraging them to take out less and supporting them as they do that. There was a report by Business for Nature. They suggested that globally, we spend $1.8 trillion on subsidies that are dis- that are driving the destruction of nature. So this is really something that we need to address in all sectors, actually, at a global scale.
1: Something that we spoke about a lot in that episode was how institutional success is defined by how much Governments can kind of integrate different sectors and combine all of their different ambitions and visions into one because obviously they're all intertwined and you can't really further one without the rest. Very few other countries seem to be latching onto that realisation. In the UK, it's interesting because I think Some parties are very pro-green and some are very anti. Rather than seeing the environment as the cornerstone underpinning all of them, we see it as something that some agree with, something that some disagree with, completely forgetting that they would not exist without the environment and recognising how to protect it.
0: And I think actually really worrying that in the UK, the political parties only seem to be going in the wrong direction on this it seems to be getting more and more polarised. And that's because the Conservative Party at the moment are very intent on using the prospect of net zero and the transition that we're going to have to go through in the coming decades uh, as a weapon in a culture war. And historically, what's helped us so much as a country is that there used to be a pretty strong cross-party consensus that climate change is happening and that we need to do something about it. And yet that seems to be increasingly undermined. And I worry that unless we're careful, we could go in the same direction as America, for example, where uh, climate policy is such a polarised agenda that it becomes very, very difficult to make any progress, especially between changes in government. So I think that's a really important point.
1: You mentioned America, and we often see them as the antithesis of green, lots of their policies. And I've for a long time been putting Costa Rica on this pedestal. And in reality, you know, uh, Carlos said that Costa Rica needs a new water law and it's been obstructed by the agricultural sector. In the last 15 years, even though in the 1990s they passed a lot of laws, being sustainable isn't a target to achieve. It's the constant maintenance of these policies, the constant implementation of new policies, because obviously the world is adapting, changing, um, so it has to constantly keep up with that.
0: Yes, it's uh, it's a constant updating of policies and the challenges that Costa Rica is going to face in the coming decades, I think, with decarbonisation and protecting biodiversity are going to be slightly different ones, probably to the ones that it's faced to date. There's one thing that um, we didn't bring up with Carlos because we didn't have time, something very nerdy and very technical, but it might be that actually restoring forests in Costa Rica might not necessarily have been a good thing for the planet. Uh, I know that that's going to sound shocking to you, Bella, uh, but bear with me. And the reason for that is that forest that's cut down, it's normally for agriculture. If you stop cutting down forests and you start to restore it, as they did in Costa Rica, those people, they still need to eat the food, but they're just going to get it from somewhere else. And so that demand doesn't de- disappear. The deforestation doesn't just vanish, it just it just moves. It can move down the road to the nearest area that's not protected. Or if you're protecting forests in a whole country, it can move to a completely different side of the world. So the real question that we need to ask in Costa Rica is when they protected and restored their forests, does that mean that they displaced that deforestation to other countries? Or did they genuinely increase the net amount of forest around the world? That's a really interesting question. And I actually, I had a look at a a quick scientific paper before coming on here. And if you'll tolerate this for a moment, Um, I think it's really interesting. The way that they freed up that area to restore that forest, they did two things. Firstly, they decreased the amount of meat that they produced and that they exported. And that meat that they used to export to other countries, that's now probably being produced somewhere else. So that means that Costa Rica has turned from absorbing a lot of land use demand internationally from other countries to now actually displacing some of its own production and needing land in other countries to fuel its domestic consumption now. But secondly, what they did is they began to farm more intensively. And that means that even though they doubled their forest cover, they've actually continually grown their agricultural production at the same time. And so it's the balance of those two things which is won out. They managed to produce more forest overall than, than they've caused to be cut down. In fact, it turns out, and you'll be very pleased to hear this, Bella, you'll breathe a sigh of relief, they have. The total area of land reforested in Costa Rica, according to this study, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, was actually 130% of the additional land that was used abroad for imports. So overall, the reforestation in Costa Rica, it did have a net positive effect around the world. Does that make sense?
1: It makes sense. And I am happy to hear because I have been touting Costa Rica as a beacon of success, like I say.
0: Definitely, definitely. But yes, I think it's time to move on to the second bit of our debrief that we like to do, which is to talk about how people at home can help with this.
1: Yeah, do you want to go first? Sure thing. Okay.
0: I think the way that I look at this, Bella, is I see that there are two sides to this, to what people can do at home. The first is contributing to the land protection, to protecting the forests around the world. And there are different ways to do this, potentially. One is supporting policies that do that and good governance. A lot of countries around the world have signed up now to protect 30% of the land in their countries for nature by the end of the decade. So if everyone can push their governments to do that, that's fantastic and also supporting NGOs that are doing the same thing, protecting lands or protecting indigenous rights. I think I see those two things as going hand in hand because safeguarding indigenous territories can actually be one of the most effective ways to protect tropical rainforests all the way around the world. And I think as well as the land protection, the other side of the coin is to look at the demand and the supply chain. And the great thing about the supply chain is that although there are so many different actors in it, For every single point in that supply chain that we influence, there will be a ripple effect through every link. My feeling is that it's best to start in the communities or the organizations that you yourself are a part of, because that's where you can have the most influence. For example, I actually wasn't responsible for this myself, but (laughs) as a case study, my college decided to offer only one meat option in the canteen and to have this placed after the vegetarian and the vegan option And that has reduced meat consumption across hundreds of students and staff in the college quite considerably. Uh, And so if you scale that up across other colleges, across other universities, suddenly that small change becomes quite a big one.
1: I think another one which is slightly, perhaps more intangible, tell me if it's too intangible, is about, as a society, about how we measure success. Because a lot of values of success in the last Hundred years or so have been centered around GDP, and lots of what Costa Rica has done has been redefined. So, their motivation wasn't purely economic and has also been about well being, about happiness. um And I love the idea of the National Happiness Index, by the way, as a metric of success, but that's another whole conversation. Can I ask, can you know how we normally do an icebreaker? I'm going to ask what's the opposite of an icebreaker at the end, an ice maker?
0: Does that mean that I just shouldn't respond?
1: (laughs) If you could implement your own metric of success right now, what would it be? Make it a silly one.
0: A silly one? Oh, I was going to go for a sensible one, the SDGs. I really feel like that's what all governments should aim for, is to, uh, to meet the sustainable development goals. But a silly one, I think a great indicator of success would be the number of people that listen to and subscribe to here's the plan because I think that the people who listen to this podcast generally have good principles have fantastic taste and so I think all governments should aspire to have a high proportion of their population listening to here's the plan and I'm pleased to share with you Bella that actually our podcast is so far being listened to in more than 15 countries around the world did you know that
1: I didn't know that I think I was going to bring in when you were talking about the SDGs the planetary boundaries, the nine planetary boundaries and how we must stay within them. There's no upper boundary for how many people can listen to the podcast.
0: Yeah, you can never have too many people listening to our podcast. So if you want to help with that course, if you've enjoyed our podcast, we would really love for you to share it, to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts or if you're on Spotify, give us five stars. And in doing this, more people can hear our podcast and hear what we have to say. Uh, And if you'd like to support us even further, if you really love what we're doing, you can tip us the equivalent of a coffee on coffee.com with a K. We've got links to that and all our social media in the show notes.
1: Next week, we're going to take a little look at the other side of the coin when it comes to deforestation, which is farming. Agriculture is the leading cause of biodiversity loss around the world and a major contributor to the climate crisis. We're going to dig up the dirt on what we need to change about the way we farm and hear about an emerging new practice called vertical farming, which might just be part of the solution. See you next time. Bye. Bye.